may be seated. Thank you, brothers. Thank you, Austin, Charlie, Newell, Nathan, and all those that prayed in the back room this morning. Take the word of God and let's turn to the Gospel of John, the seventh chapter. And let's cover some more verses there and learn what the Lord has chosen to retain for us of the life and works of Jesus Christ. John is going to tell us at the end of this gospel that if all the things that he had done had been written, the world itself could not contain the books. But what he has written was written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing we might have life through his name. So let's lay hold of him this morning and believe on him and love him and purpose in our hearts to serve him. He's worthy. When I opened earlier today, grace be unto all them that love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. There's every reason to love him. In comparison, there's no reason to love anyone else. In comparison. That's why he himself would teach that to love him is to hate others. In comparison. Because he's altogether lovely. And how amiable are his tabernacles, which is a lovely place to worship him. And he's beautiful as we watch him move among his enemies in the city of Jerusalem. John chapter 7. Let me read to you verses 10 through 18, which is section number 3, and covers Jesus arriving at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem in September, October of the final year of his life. I begin at verse 10 of John 7. The brethren here are his physical siblings, his brothers and sisters from Mary. They did not believe on him at this time. Verse 10 of John 7. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Amen and amen. Last Lord's Day, in the morning, we covered verses 10 through 17. And I tried to tell you the importance of that 17th verse. It is a key verse. If you love the Gospel of John, John 7, 17 ought to be one of your favorite verses. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. These people were having a hard time believing that what Jesus was preaching was the truth 
because they knew his origin was in Nazareth, and they knew that he didn't have a seminary education at the esteemed schools of the Jews, nor was he taught by any of their famous rabbis. He was from the backwoods and fishing area of Galilee. And so they didn't understand how they could possibly confirm his doctrine, which differed from what was being preached in Jerusalem as the truth. And so Jesus told them a very important rule that helps us. And I explained it all last Lord's Day, and I'm not going to repeat it this morning. But we want to obey the Lord and all that he has revealed to us in order to obtain the further light of more knowledge and revelation of his will for our lives. The word of God is closed as a book to those that do not obey what he has revealed. God's revealed himself to men through creation, through providence, through conscience, through scripture, and through preaching of scripture. And if men reject that, the Lord puts scales over their eyes and blinds them. And he loves to blind men that don't like to receive the word that he's given them. And the Bible's filled in both testaments of God blinding men. The Bible tells us that God sends strong delusion for men to believe lies. And that there are men that stagger in drunkenness, but they're not drunk with wine. They're drunk in the blindness he's put upon them. But what we want from this verse is to see the wisdom of Jesus Christ laying out an axiom of truth to his audience, but giving us something to always remember. There's a reason why others depart from the faith. I gave you an example in an update this week about Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man. What in the world did he go to the Greek Orthodox Catholics for? That is severe blindness. Here's a man who had given himself for several decades to the use of God's word to defend evangelical Christianity from the onslaught of cults in America. And here he is going to a Roman, I mean, a Greek Catholic cult against evangelical Christianity. It happens everywhere. I'm named Jonathan, in part for Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, a man that I can esteem and did esteem, may esteem for certain things in his life and certain things in his doctrine, was an enemy of Baptists. A baby sprinkling eternal sonship, state church, classical learning heretic. And that's the truth about him. But you know, when a man is faced with the issue of baptism and opens the word of God and chooses infant christening instead of believer's baptism, that's a choice against the revealed will of God, and God's going to blind them on other points of doctrine as well. So we shouldn't be surprised when baby sprinklers like Hank Hanegraaff, who was raised Christian Reformed and was a friend of D. James Kennedy out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, ends up with the Greek Catholics. We shouldn't be surprised because we've got to obey what God reveals to us. So for each, for you and me, for you and me, are we obeying everything God's revealed? We want to do it individually. We want to do it as families and we want to do it as a church so that we can preserve God's light and revelation to each of us of further knowledge and understanding of his will for our lives. It's a wonderful verse. I thank God for this verse. I I told you about how this verse affected me. I've had a 40-year relationship with this verse. If any man will do his will, 
he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. That's how we learn the truth. We obey what God shows us, and so he shows us more. And so we obey more, and he shows us more. And so we obey more, and he shows us more. And he's shown us a lot. Amen. And so let's obey a lot right. so that he'll show us some more. Amen. Verse 18. This concludes section 3 about Jesus preaching at the Feast of Tabernacles, and then he's going to enter into a rebuke of their hypocrisy in verse 19. So let's conclude that third section with verse 18. He that speaketh of himself, Jesus is giving another rule of how to identify a true preacher, meaning himself in this context. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus gives the rule here that you want to look for a preacher that magnifies the one sending him. And the one sending Jesus was God his Father, and Jesus was always about magnifying God his Father, even at 12. Know ye not that I must be about my Father's business? He didn't say, hey, don't you know I got a job to do? I'm sorry if that sounds a little sacrilegious. It is. Don't you know I must be about my father's business? Always directing attention to his father. My father sent me. My father gave me my doctrine. My father told me what to do. My father told me what to say. We've already covered that in John chapter 5 and other places that Jesus always represented his father. And that's a faithful messenger. And the book of Proverbs teaches us the same thing. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 6 puts it this way. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. And so we love the writers of Scripture. We love the Apostle Paul when he comes out and says, I am less than the least of all saints. Now that's low. But what does he say about the Lord Jesus Christ? He dwells in a light that no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. And he always exalts God and he exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to be like that. And Jesus was like that. And we, don't, we only want to let other men's mouths praise us and not our own. Men that promote themselves may be rejected because of this measure of evil character that Jesus gives us in this verse of John 7 and verse 18. The only praise you should ever receive should come from others. Let another man's mouth praise thee and not thine own. It teaches in Proverbs 27 and verse 2. When Paul boasted, and Paul could do some boasting, when Paul boasted, it was because the church at Corinth had forced him to it, and he says it very plainly. You have compelled me to boast. Because you have brought my apostleship into question... And because you are disrespecting me, and these false teachers out of Jerusalem are disrespecting me in Corinth, you have compelled me to boast. So he did take a few chapters and, and give some parts of his resume that absolutely annihilated any of his competitors. Yeah. Let me chase that one for just a second. In his resume listing in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, to the most charismatic church 
in the New Testament. By that I mean they had the most spiritual gifts. They were second to no other church in the New Testament. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul came to, the, came to visions and revelations. Corinth had lots of visions and revelations because they were always looking for another vision from God. And Paul said, let us come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Let's move to that section of my resume. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I know not. But that man in Christ received up into the third heaven and saw things that were not lawful for him to speak. Yes. Now, the Apostle Paul had lots that he could have boasted about, but even in that context, when he's telling the church that sought revelations that he had been to the third heaven and came back, he said he was forced to talk about it, and that the Lord had given him a thorn in the flesh, lest he should be puffed up by such things. So there, there's a great balance by our pattern. The Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ is the supreme pattern that taught Paul how to conduct himself. The doctrine of Jesus, that he, what he preached, doctrine simply means teaching and preaching. The body of knowledge conveyed by verbal communication, that's what doctrine is. A body of knowledge of truth conveyed and communicated. The doctrine of Jesus was evidently from God, for Jesus referred to God so much. He wasn't referring to himself, he was referring to God. He let his miracles stand where they would as showing who he was. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is the Father's will which hath sent me. John 6, the previous chapter, carefully showing Jesus' submission to God's will. The Bible we have is a unique book. Its writers wrote more to their shame than their honor. The book of Acts tells us in detail about Paul persecuting the church and being a blasphemer and causing others to blaspheme. The Bible tells us clearly about David's adultery, David numbering Israel, David's other sins. The Bible tells us about Solomon's failures. The Bible tells us about Samson's failures. The Bible is a unique book in that its writers and its heroes are shown with all their faults, flaws, and sins for us to realize that they're not promoting themselves, they're promoting another. They're promoting the Lord Jehovah and His Son, Jesus Christ. It's one of the proofs of the Scriptures. It's a unique book that way. Ordinary ministers must do it also by exalting God's glory and Jesus crucified in the church. This rule, this rule of John 7, 18 does condemn Arminianism in a sense because that form of doctrine glorifies man over God and Christ. Let's grab a, a key practical piece of wisdom from this rule before we leave it. The rule is John 7, 18, Jesus speaking, in Jerusalem, halfway through the Feast of Tabernacles. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. This is how you can tell that I'm giving you the truth. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. That's the rule. We can learn from it practically. There's key practical wisdom here that makes some gracious and some odious. Some people are gracious and some are odious. Graciousness is never talking about your life, yourself, or your knowledge of anything. If we want your perceived, deceived, self-deceived knowledge about something, we'll ask you. Until we ask you, stop deceiving yourself and trying to deceive us by talking. 
I know, that's hard and harsh, but let's just learn something from it. Gracious people don't talk about their life. They don't talk about themselves. They don't talk about their knowledge of what's happening to you. Some people want to take a conversation and turn it around. Yes, that happened to me when we don't care if it happened to you. I was telling you that it happened to me. Who cares if it happened to you? What happened? Did you just have a blackout? Just some practical wisdom before we rush on. Wise men and women should be, it should be truer of women than it is men, have few words. Few words. Proverbs chapter 17 reads this way, the last two verses. He that hath knowledge spareth his words. A man that really knows something doesn't talk about it. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is an excellent spirit, is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. So let's learn that. Let's let others say things about us and not we ourselves. Uh, just, a, just, just some practical wisdom taken from this rule that Jesus gave to his audience to be able to prove to themselves that a man from Galilee, from Nazareth of Galilee, could be from God because of the way he emphasized and referred to God sending him rather than himself. Those that never add anything verbally have an equal opposite problem. So you, those of you that are quiet and don't say anything, you haven't escaped at all. You've just jumped into another ditch that's equally as bad as someone that's odious by talking too much. So those that never add anything verbally and aren't trees of life because you don't talk, you have an equal opposite problem. So don't sit in judgment on those that talk too much. Men with real wisdom have to be primed to obtain it. It's like deep water that needs to be drawn out, and men of understanding know how to draw it out. But those that seek the glory of the one that sent him, those are true messengers. Jesus was a true messenger because he sought the glory of God. There was no unrighteousness in him. He had a true ministry that those Jews could rely on. So in verses 17 and 18, jumping up in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem... Jesus lays out two important rules. If you want to know that what I'm preaching is the truth, obey everything God's given you. And the Jews weren't. And so they were blinded. They didn't like the prophets. And being told that they were wrong. They liked the Jewish rabbis and their rabbinical learning. And then this, this verse and the rule of verse 18 is that we, Jesus is saying, look at the emphasis of me versus the Pharisees. The Pharisees had men blast on trumpets to announce that they were about to give. The Pharisees would pray, Lord, I thank thee that I am not like this publican over here. Now that's just the kind of a man that you don't listen to. You know, when men name books after themselves and universities after themselves and churches after themselves and ministries after themselves, you know, you want to stay away from men like that and go for those that are wanting to exalt God and the glory of Christ and minimize themselves. We want to minimize our church. We want to minimize the pastor of this church. We want to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father and His Word. And we're, we're amused and we're angered. We're confused when people write us and want to know about who we are and where we went to school and what credentials we have. 
The credentials we have are the grace of God, and the wisdom we have is the Word of God. Amen. What do you want next? Other than that, we're a bunch of ugly sinners saved by grace. Amen. Why would you want to know anything about us? Because their minds are off in left field, like these Jews were, wanting someone that had been to the rabbinical schools rather than Jesus of Nazareth that was the Son of God. Okay, verse 19. Verse 19 runs down through verse 24. Let's see if we can cover these six verses. Here he goes. This is my Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he liked to preach. Right here. Here we go. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about to kill thee. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Amen, amen and amen. amen. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, that wouldn't win friends and influence people like Dale Carnegie taught. Amen. You're right. Amen. Jesus hadn't been to Dale Carnegie's school of winning friends and influencing people. He had been to the school of heaven, and he just preached the truth. And he laid it out to them that they were hypocrites about the law of Moses in their amb jealous ambition to kill him for breaking their Sabbath. They broke it on a regular basis in a number of different ways, and they were hypocrites for it. And they ought to judge righteous judgment by assessing what had actually been done back there in John chapter 5 with the healing of the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda rather than wanting to kill him for breaking the Sabbath that they broke on a regular basis. They had cut people. They cut people 30, 40, 50. And every Sabbath day they were cutting with minor surgery on young boys, circumcising them on the eighth day from birth, breaking the Sabbath, cutting men. But they wouldn't exonerate and justify the Lord Jesus Christ for making a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day. Amen. They were hypocrites. Amen. And here Jesus is, he takes a few sentences to tell them that if they want to know why he'd never been to school, but yet he was preaching truth, it was because they ought to obey what they had been shown, that he always honored the one sending him, so he was a faithful messenger, and they were hypocrites. And if they would judge righteously like they judged themselves, they would have let him go and rejoiced in the healing of the impotent man. The Sabbath was part of Moses' law. Did not Moses give you the law? Didn't Moses give you the law that included circumcision and the Sabbath day? And yet none of you keepeth the law. You're going about to kill me. Why do you want to kill me? Why do you think the fourth commandment, Sabbath, is more important than the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill? Why do you want to kill me? You want to kill me for healing a man? Is that really what you want to do? I love this Lord Jesus Christ. Because what he's saying is true. Why have you put the fourth commandment over the sixth commandment? When the sixth commandment involves my life. 
The fourth commandment doesn't involve anyone's life. And in fact, you people all know that even the life of your little ass, this, oh, that's the one Jesus chose to use, and we'll get there in a moment, the little life of your little ass, you will preserve by leading it to watering on the Sabbath day, breaking the Sabbath to get your little ass some water. But yet you won't let me heal a man the Sabbath. Yet none of you keepeth the law. Why do you go about to kill me? Jesus admitted Moses' law, but he charged them all for breaking Moses' law. He knew that wasn't going to go over very well with the audience because they prided themselves in Moses' law rather than the grace of God and the coming Messiah of God. He knew and they knew that they broke Moses' law for asses and all sorts of things. He explained in what is next that their desire to kill him was against Moses. He then also explained that circumcision was a violation of Moses' Sabbath because they were cutting little boys. You know, if there were 10,000 little boys born a year, then all you've got to do is a little math to find out that there were 30 circumcised every single Sabbath day. This Sabbath, 30 boys got to get cut, got to get them, haul them off to the doctor, have the doctor come to your house. He's got to engage in his profession and activity, or dad's got to do it, or, or mom's got to do it, and cut the little guy 30 days this Sabbath, 30, 30 boys next Sabbath, 30 boys the following Sabbath. They're breaking every single Sabbath with 30, 40, 50 boys. And yet, Jesus, that made an impotent man every bit whole on the Sabbath, they want to kill him. Elsewhere, Jesus explained that the priests profane the Sabbath. You remember that in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus said, you're going to pick on my, fair, on my apostles for having picked a little bit of corn while we're walking through this field and rubbing it in their hands and eating it. You're going to pick on them. Uh, what about the priests? Jesus said, they profane the Sabbath, meaning they work harder on the Sabbath day than any other day of the week. And yet you don't say anything to them or about them. You're being a, you're hypocrites. That's what he's preaching right now. You're hypocrites. And if they would have humbled from their hypocrisy, they'd have been saved in the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming 40 years later. Elsewhere, he explained that they would honor their own livestock in leading them to watering. Let's see if we can find that. Luke chapter 13, because you might want to see it since I just made such a big deal about it. Yes, here we go. This is one of the, one of the passages where Jesus mentions this in defense of himself for healing on the Sabbath day. Healing's a good thing. Why shouldn't he do it on the Sabbath? Why, why was the Sabbath given? This is what we believe about the Bible, and it's going to pop up just more shortly. We believe that there are some principles in the Bible, and one of them is intent, the principle of intent. It's taught in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 27, the intent. What was the intent of the Sabbath? Rest. Could you rest better healed or unhealed? Healed, of, co of course. And so to heal was appropriate for the Sabbath day, and they knew it. But they hated Jesus of Nazareth. So they would twist their law to condemn him while justifying themselves taking care of their little ass at home. Luke 13, 15, the Lord then answered him. This is the ruler of the synagogue who answered Jesus with indignation in verse 14 because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day 
and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. This is the ruler of the synagogue telling a crowd in a city, There are six days you can get healed. You shouldn't get healed on the Sabbath. But what would that same ruler of the synagogue do for his little ass at home? We'll find out in the Lord's answer in verse 15. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite! Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. And so we rejoice. That's beautiful doctrine. That's beautiful logic. That's beautiful reasoning. That's beautiful mercy. You understand there's mercy with the Lord for you. There's mercy for those that aren't here today that have a reason for not being here today. There's mercy. Because I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And so there's reasons to break the Sabbath in those days. And there's reasons for us to be merciful as well. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and your great example that you give us. Breaking the Sabbath could surely result in capital punishment, like Numbers chapter 15 teaches where the man picking up sticks was stoned to death. The principle of mercy was known, though. David and the priests used it. The priests profaned the Sabbath day, and David went in and ate the showbread. And Jesus used that example with those Pharisees. How did David know he could eat the showbread? The Bible says that only the priests could eat the showbread. How did David know he could eat the showbread? Because he was hungry. You say, is it that simple? It's that simple. Because there wasn't an easy option. Were there options? Yes. Was there an easy option? No. Would he have made it to the next day? Was he about to fall dead to the ground? No. Because there's mercy with the Lord. Jesus said it can all be summed up. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Do you know what we're called? Do you know what this one of the one of the names that we're called? Of course, the people that use the names, they couldn't define them. Most of them can't even spell them. But they, they accuse us of being legalists. <laughs> legalists. They don't even know what a legalist is. Right. A legalist is someone that says you have to keep the law of Moses in order to go to heaven. That's a legalist. you got to keep the law. See, legal, they don't know how to make any connections. Do you know what they think a legalist is? Someone that does a church that doesn't have a steeple. A church where most of the men wear, dress up like they're going to an interview. We don't have musical instruments. We preach against movies. We preach against worldly music. They call that legalism. They don't even know what the word means, and most of them couldn't spell it. A legalist is someone that believes you've got to keep Moses' law in order to go to heaven. Law, legal, can you make the connection? They don't know what a legalist is. Do you know how legalistic we are? You know, we preach attendance because it's in Hebrews 10.25, but how legalistic are we? I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's how legalistic we are. That the lawgiver said that mercy was more important than sacrifice. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That is not something Jesus invented. 
David already knew about it or he wouldn't have eaten the showbread. David knew about it. Let me show you. David knew about it, probably taught it to Solomon because Solomon wrote it in Proverbs 21 and verse 3. I'll read it to you. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. When a woman was bound by Satan for 18 years with an issue of blood, should the Lord heal her or not on the Sabbath day? To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than the sacrifice of saying, woman, can you wait until Sunday so that we can take care of your issue? It's taught in the Word of God, Proverbs 21 and verse 3. And then it's taught in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, this principle that Jesus brought forward and taught it in Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 2 and showed it right here in John chapter 7. Hosea 6, 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Under the Old Testament, where burnt offerings were a strictly required part of worshiping God, God said, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy was more important, and the knowledge of God was more important than burnt offerings. You knowing me was more important than you killing some animal and putting it on my altar, though they killed animals and put them on, on an altar every single day of the history of Israel. Okay. Lord, we love your law. Amen. And Jesus is saying here in John chapter 7 and 19, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? You people really think that you're followers of Moses? You don't keep what Moses wrote. Why go ye about to kill me? Didn't he write in the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? If they didn't know that they were going about to kill them, him, then they were from the countryside and didn't know what was going on in Jerusalem. Or they were, conf they were liars there. And I don't, I don't give this char their character very much credit here because they said, Thou hast a devil. So why should I look for anything in this passage to exonerate them in the least way? Right. They just wanted to retort and disagree with him on every point that they could. Who goeth about to kill thee? They knew enough to keep their mouths shut and not talk about him because the Jews, they were afraid of being killed themselves by the Jews for talking about Jesus. The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Isn't that wonderful language about the Lord Jesus Christ? And who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. I have done one work. What is this one work that he's done? Preaching the sermon so far, verse 17, verse 18. What is the one work? The one work is what he did way back in John 5. He hadn't been back in Jerusalem since he did it. What did he do back in John 5? He visited the pool of Bethesda and healed the impotent man. And because he healed the impotent man the Sabbath day, it says in John chapter 5 and verse 16, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. That was the next verse. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So in verse 21 of John 7, Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. He's taking, see, he hasn't said the Sabbath yet. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me, breaking the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. They say, you've got a devil. Who's trying to kill you? He says in response, verse 21, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. 
You're all worked up and upset. Not, that marvel is not an act of conviction. That marvel is not an act of conversion. That marvel is you're all worked up and upset about one thing I did because it shocked your little system about all your sanctimonious observations about the Sabbath, though you all break the Sabbath every day. Y'all marvel. Verse 22. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. That's verse 22 with the parentheses excluded for the moment. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision. Here's my point. You don't keep the law of Moses, because Moses gave you circumcision, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man, and they probably did 30 or 40 every Sabbath day on average. In the parentheses, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. Moses did not invent circumcision. Circumcision was invented by God, given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 that you read last Saturday, eight days ago in preparation for last Sunday. And so that's what it means in parentheses. Not because it is of Moses. He's just dealing with Moses right now because he, he wants to deal with Moses and the Sabbath commandment. Moses and the killing commandment. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision because it started with Abraham 430 years in advance as, it, as we're taught in Galatians chapter 3. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. So he's, he's explaining to them and showing them and identifying their hypocrisy. Verse 23. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, one commandment against another commandment. The specific overriding the general. Really? Is it that simple? Yes, it's that simple. Are there pacifists that don't believe in capital punishment, don't believe in war, don't believe in you owning a gun to protect your home? They're pacifists. Where do they go in the Bible? Many of them are religious in nature. Where do they go? The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. That's the general provision, thou shalt not kill. What are some of the specifics? If a man sheds another man's blood, he's to be killed. You've got to defend your nation, and it's okay to raise an army and go kill other men to protect your nation. And so you, you go to specific commandments, overriding the general commandment of thou shalt not kill. In general, God does not want men to take other men's lives. And so you can reason different ways through the sixth commandment about thou shalt not kill, but the civil arm bears, does not bear the sword in vain. God gave the civil arm the sword to cut off heads. Oh, do you know that, it, that they've ruled against the state of Arkansas right now? That starting on the 17th, which is tomorrow, they were going to execute eight men in 11 days, eight murderers that they've been feeding and supplying with television and magazines and books for many years. They were going to put them to death, but that's been stayed right now. Because the drugs may be a little stale and might cause a little pain on the way out. I sort, I sort of like stale drugs in such a situation. Just so that it gets a little closer to stoning. God's chosen me. Did God know about swords in the Bible? Could, could they have invented a guillotine in the Bible? But they didn't because stoning is more effective. Why? Because it takes a while and it makes a lot of noise. Never mind. 
Whereon thou shalt not kill. It's the sixth commandment. We're on the fourth commandment about the Sabbath. So verse 23 is Jesus reasoning with them. Jesus is reasoning about the nature of how to keep the law of God. He's not looking at the superficial appearance that comes from him healing a man and that man carrying his bed. Remember, the man was carrying his bed in John chapter 5, and that's why he was stopped. What are you carrying your bed in the Sabbath? Well, the man that healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. Well, who did that? You know, they're judging by appearance. You know I'm getting to the verse 24th verse. Lord, help us. That 24th verse is a rule that is so important about how to judge righteously so that we're not hypocrites ourselves. If a man on the Sabbath day, verse 23, receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Isn't that doing good and loving my neighbor and taking care of this man that was at the pool of Bethesda and because he was so impotent and weak he couldn't get in when the angels stirred up the water? Show some mercy toward the man. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And so that brings us to verse 24. You want another important verse in John chapter 7? It's verse 24. That is a wonderful principle of how to judge. You don't judge by what meets your eyes or meets your ears. And I tried to share Isaiah 11 with you last Lord's Day in a timing way with this passage, but we got waylaid last Sunday, and it was okay. It was a good waylaying. But Isaiah 11, remember, it says about the Lord Jesus Christ that he would be filled with the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of judgment, and he would not judge by the hearing of his ears or the sight of his eyes. And here he is proving it. We do not want to make judgments by what meets our initial impression. First impressions can often be crazily stupid. We want to think through a situation and reason through it. When you look at David eating that showbread, can you see David pulling out his Boy Scout knife and cutting the showbread and slamming some... No, there wasn't pepperoni slammed in that loaf. Not in the Old Testament, remember? Um... Whatever he put in that, whatever he did with that loaf, maybe peanut butter, it was organic, folks. Please don't write me. It it had essential oils. It was organic. It had been blessed by a chiropractor. (laughs) That homogenized stuff tastes pretty good as long as it's crunchy. Don't get me that smooth variety. There's David. How, how can you look at that? How did David know to touch that bread? Did David know about Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire and the Lord burning them up? Did David know about what was going to happen when he moved the Ark of the Covenant on the new ox cart and God killed Uzzah? All those examples in the Bible? The example of Moses? smiting a rock instead of speaking to it? David knew examples, and yet David ate that showbread. And I love that, and Jesus used that. Jesus is the one that used that. Jesus brought that forward into Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 2 and used that to show the Pharisees that they were hypocritical in the use of the Bible. They didn't know the Bible. 
He said, you do, you do err not knowing the scriptures. Why haven't you read the Bible to pick up on these examples of men breaking the commandments to keep other commandments? And the other commandment is, I prefer mercy. Mercy's better than sacrifice. That doesn't mean we abuse it, because the man that went out and picked up sticks presumptuously on the Sabbath day was stoned to death. We don't abuse God's privilege of mercy, but we can use God's privilege of mercy. Look at this. So verse 23 is the logical situation facing this audience from the Lord Jesus Christ and his condemnation of their hypocrisy. You will break the Sabbath day to circumcise a man, and that is to cut him. I healed a man and made him every whit whole rather than cutting him. Don't you think that deserves at least equal treatment under the law with what you do? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Jesus not only exonerated himself against the Jews, he also taught us some wisdom right here. This is an important axiom of religion that Jesus Christ taught in his doctrine. Most only perceive, analyze, or judge what is apparent, what is implied, or what is superficial. The case here condemned healing on the Sabbath while condoning cutting. Only a few men in the world are wise to ignore mere appearance. Only a few men are wise enough to judge by appearance. I mean, to judge by the nature of a case rather than the appearance. Serious Christians sacrifice diversions to frequently pursue wisdom, to fervently pursue wisdom. I'm not going to turn you to those verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 8.1 describes the wisdom of a man makes his face to shine. And he understands what to do. Proverbs chapter 18, 1 says that a man that wants wisdom will separate himself from this world and all of its distractions in order to intermeddle with all wisdom. It's got to be learned. Wise men are not moved by appearances. They analyze the nature of a case. We're learning about the Lord Jesus. Expository preaching takes us wherever the Holy Spirit leads us. We are in the middle of John 7 right now to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have learned why he went up in the midst of the feast into the temple to teach. We're seeing how he opened up his remarks. We're seeing how they initially responded. We're seeing how he condemned them for their hypocrisy. He identifies the hypocrisy. We're learning about the law of God is set in priorities and that some laws are higher than other laws depending on the case of the and the circumstances. We're learning that it's hypocrisy to reverse that order and get things messed up and confused. We're learning not to judge by the appearance or that it looks like what's happening, but we're to look at the nature of the case and analyze all of its aspects and make a merciful judgment, which is what Jesus did in the healing of the impotent man. And now he's giving us the rule and the rule, the axiom. You learned axioms in geometry. You learned rules in geometry. And in other subjects, the axiom of truth here about reasoning rightly and how to judge a situation is judge not by the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And righteous judgment is considering all that God has said, including, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God is more important to me than burnt offerings. Wise men are not moved by appearances. David ate the showbread in spite of the apparent violation of Moses' law. Hezekiah broke the Passover rules to observe it quickly without sanctification. I'm, I'm giving you some examples from the Bible. You know what Hezekiah said? The good Lord, pardon us. Amen. 
Wow, he was messing with the feast of the Lord. He kept it the second month instead of the first month because he didn't want to wait 11 months. That's zeal for the Lord. The Bible's full of these, and men, that's why we have men's meetings, is to go over things like this. We have, we have documents on our website that are very special. Christian ethics, the principles of Christian ethics, the case studies of Christian ethics, how to make wise decisions. The Lord's been very merciful to us and shown us things all over from the sonship of Jesus Christ to Christian ethics. Bible ethics. Jesus proved that de facto government denied the appearance of sympathy to Rome. He wasn't a Roman sympathizer. He just recognized that there was a de facto government in Palestine over the Israelites. And so we we saw that. Show me your money. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Here comes the superficial judgment of a Jew. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? They were just ready to pounce on him no matter what he said, they were going to get him. If he said, no, it's not lawful, they'd have hauled him to the Romans. If he said, yes, it's lawful, they'd have hauled him to the Jews. They were going to get him either way. So what did he do? Show me the money. That's my Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, he's just sharing some wisdom with that audience, which they didn't appreciate, and we do appreciate it. We love it. The Sermon on the Mount crushes the apparent righteousness of Pharisees. Over and over, Jesus said, But I say unto you, but I say unto you, as he corrected the excesses of the Pharisees. You know, a libertarian restricted government appears good, but it's morally bankrupt. Libertarians, if you don't know what a libertarian is, and you need to go look it up. But a libertarian government appears good because it looks like they're giving freedom to the individual man and exalting the individual man's individual liberty, but it's morally bankrupt because it has no place for God in it and his moral law. Talking to one side of a relationship is but one side of a coin. Turn it over. See, if you just listen to one person whine about their marriage, then you're judging by appearance and by the hearing of the ear. Why don't you go get in private with the other side of that marriage and find out what, what's really going on? That's, that, these are things on how we can apply the wisdom of God's word. Political voting for principle is by appearance. It's so pitifully weak. It's so childish. It's amazing. Missing the role of prudence when you vote. Divorce and remarriage looks beyond two example cases of Jesus and Paul. Jesus gives the example of fornication. In Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, Paul gives the example of desertion in 1 Corinthians 7. But there's other situations that arise where there may not be desertion and there may not be fornication, but there's still justified reasons to save someone from a terrible marriage. And we do that by, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Much more has been said and could be said on any one of these points. Business association with evil is allowed, for we cannot go out of the world. If you have to enter into relationships with 
any sin, any, any abominable sin. Pick whatever, pick whatever one you want. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, we can't go out of the world. It's just going to be part of our lives. But there is something we can do. We, we can keep them out of our church. And that's what he argues in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. We keep them out of our church, but we've got to work with them when we're outside of the church in the world. The principle of mercy is not readily apparent, but it is weightier than sacrifice. You know, when we look at mercy rather than sacrifice, we think, well, that's just a compromiser. There's a Pharisee in every one of us. There's a bigger Pharisee in some of us. When we see mercy, that's just weakness. That's just compromise. I mean, if there was real zeal, we wouldn't have a need for mercy. This is, this is how it... Oh, yes. One of my last assignments before I was ordained was to preach on gentleness, long-suffering, and mercy. <laughs> because church members had said, if he was ordained, I wouldn't be a member here, would I? Because I took a vacation last year. Thank you, Lord! I love Matthew 12, 7. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Amen. Is, anyone, is there someone on vacation today that we can celebrate right now? <laughs> anyone? Wow. Maybe you knew what verse was coming up. <laughs> the principle of materiality that the Lord's shown us. I'm, now I just got to mention them and we got to end. The principle of materiality taught in the Bible. The principle of intent in Mark 2 sees past the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, and Jesus taught it, looking at the spirit of the law rather than just the letter. By the intent in Mark 2, the principle of specificity over a general law, like the Sabbath here, and specifics, specific opportunities for mercy override the general provision for the Sabbath. The principle of acceptance appeals to laws that can protect saints, you know, the Apostle Paul would say, listen, is it lawful for you to judge me and punish me, a Roman citizen? But that's because everyone understood that Roman law that you couldn't scourge a Roman citizen. But to take the law and put your interpretation on it, or you and a few of your buddies, and think that you can stop paying income taxes, that, is, that violates that law. This is a principle of acceptance. It's got to be generally accepted in order for you to make an appeal to law like that. Not your idea of the law, or we're all going to be interpreting the law our own way. The principle of suffering does not relieve our responsibility to authority, because the Bible teaches us in 1 Peter chapter 2, if we have a forward master, we're still supposed to submit to them. The principle of offense means that we will compromise our rights at times to please God by not offending. That's when they came to Jesus and, and Peter and said, Peter, does your master pay tribute? Well, Lord, do we pay tribute? And Jesus said, Peter, go down and catch a fish, open his mouth, and there'll be, a, there'll be money there for us to pay tribute. And, and Peter went and paid the tribute, and Jesus said, you know, we don't really owe that tribute, but to avoid the offense, we're going to go ahead and pay it. This is a different tribute than the taxes to Caesar. This was the the, toll, the poll tax for maintaining the temple. It was, it was temple tribute. The principle of tempting. We don't presume on God when there are options available for us to take care of ourselves. We don't presume on Him. 
And there's so many other things that we've learned, and God's been merciful to us. And if you want an interesting study, just go look at our documents on Christian ethics and see how the Lord's shown us things throughout all the pages of Scripture, like this rule right here in verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Jesus is dealing with an audience that wanted to kill him, and they wanted to kill him for healing the impotent man in John chapter 5. He has been away from Jerusalem for a number of months. Now he's back. He knows what their ambitions are toward him. He's correcting them. He's rebuking their hypocrisy. He's pointing out their error, and he's explaining it to them that you are not fair in the law of God. You want to kill me, breaking the sixth commandment, in order to try to keep the fourth commandment. You circumcise to keep your fourth commandment, but you won't let me make a man every whit whole to keep the fourth commandment and to keep the mercy of God that's more important. Don't judge by how things appear that a man was carrying his bed. That's the appearance. But the real issue is the man hadn't walked. And now he's walking. Do you know how much more he was resting and how much happier he was and how much more blessed he was by me healing him? Judge by the nature of the case. And let's always do that in this church. It's the nature of the case. Oh, brethren, the Lord's going to bring us situations. Nope. Nope. We're going to judge righteous judgment. We're going to let the word of God bear on every situation and do it as righteously as he will show us. There's never been a teacher like the Lord Jesus Christ. I was, I was very much overcome last Saturday and Sunday with Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, and all that it said about our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to read that passage again. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity? Do you love this teacher? Do you love this Son of God? The only Son of God? The beloved Son of God? Do you believe on Him? Are we going to obey him as a church and individuals? Here he is. This is what's been retained for us. This is what John, the apostle of love, gave us. None of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? Takes circumcision and Sabbath and shows them they're wrong about judging him for healing. And he gives us some wonderful principles. The principle of 17, 18, and 24 are very valuable for those that want to learn wisdom to grasp those verses and embrace them and learn how to think via those verses. To learn the importance of obeying God and everything he's revealed in order for him to show you more truth. To understand that we want as a church and you want this pulpit to always be exalting him and to judge by the nature of the case righteous judgment based on God's word rather than simply its appearance or sound. May the Lord help us in these things and most of all to help us to love his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, contrary to the audience in Jerusalem, his own people. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, yes, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thank you, Lord. Stand with me.